0: So are we good? Outstanding. Well, good morning. This This morning we're going to be reading from the book of Acts, as we have been for a little bit now. We've been kind of, the past year, kind of moving from, from topic to topic, or from passage to passage through the story of the Bible, and now we're in the New Testament, the book of Acts, and We've been uh, reading about the early church, so today we'll be reading from Acts chapter nine, so if you have your Bibles, please join with me in reading, beginning of Acts chapter nine. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues all that Jesus be, preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, "Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name?" And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. The word of the Lord. Well, as always want to say whenever I read a section of scripture, there's a lot going on here. If you ever read a section of scripture and think there's not a lot going on here, you've either missed the point or you're looking at the maps in the back. Because there's always a lot going on. But, so we have this story. We've got Saul, who we met earlier as the guy giving the, uh, the approval as Stephen was stoned, said, you know, the people stoning Stephen, they laid their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul. And Saul was there giving, a, giving approval to it. Well, Saul is a Pharisee, and this is going to be an interesting conversion. It is one thing for somebody to be converted. A lot of of us are used to hearing testimonies, and some of us have testimonies, of how we formerly lived lives that were very far from God, that were kind of wasted in the ways that the world wastes life. And then and then God gets a hold of us and changes our hearts and and transforms us and brings us out of that that past way of life and into a new way of life that's honoring him and that's that is a great testimony but this isn't kind of in some ways an even more uh, incredible testimony because that's not Paul's testimony that's not Paul's story Paul is really trying to follow God he is according to the best he knows doing everything to fulfill that story. We've talked, we've talked as we move through the Old Testament about how the Bible is really a story of God making this good creation that He intended to share in fellowship with us, how He placed us as stewards of it. And then we dropped the ball by kind of choosing to set up our our own independence in the form of our father Adam, kind of choosing a, a standard of wisdom apart from God. And, that because of that destruction and death came into creation, but God was not content for that to, to be the end of the story. So he began that plan of redemption. And we talked about how he began by calling a man and from that man, making a family and from that family a nation and that through that nation, he intended to bless and redeem his entire creation. And that's where he brought the Messiah th- from. Well, this is the story that Saul hopes in. This is the story that Saul really wants to help, advance in the world he wants to see this story carried out he's a good guy he's got zeal and for a pharisee for somebody like Saul he is going to be looking back at the times when the nation of Israel was drifting away from faithfulness and it needed people to call it back to the true way and there's you know, after, after the nation of Israel came out of Egypt during the Exodus, they actually went through a period where they, had, they were kind of settling down next to some of the pagan nations before they'd entered into the Holy Land um, while they were still wandering, but they were kind of keeping company with some of the pagan nations. They were marrying their women and starting to worship their gods and go astray, particularly um, with Moab. And uh, God actually sent a plague uh, throughout Israel because of their unfaithfulness and uh, it was left to a man from the family of Levi named Phineas and uh, he demonstrated his zeal for the Lord that he found this, this Israelite man who had just married a Moabite woman and was doing all the pagan stuff and he <laughs> killed him with a spear. <laughs> a very dramatic uh, example of zeal and, and not one necessarily that as New Testament people were called to uh, emulate but he is praised for his zeal for the Lord and indeed the plague passes away because of that and and God says well you know that he is zealous for me well Paul Paul's gonna Saul at this point is gonna remember that kind of thing he's gonna remember Elijah confronting the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel when everybody else has gone astray he's gonna remember those times of the nation of Israel getting off track and and getting into pagan practices and needing Prophetic and zealous people to call them back and that's what he thinks he's doing. He does not think he is opposing God He really believes that he believes in the story of God, but he's he's got it wrong There is um Oh, there's a a Christian writer named Brendan Manning and at one point and I wish I could remember which book he wrote it in but he talked about he said, you know, we, we have to give up our vices for God. If, if we're going to seriously live for God, we have to give up our vices for God. But we also have to give up our virtues for God, too. Anything that comes and starts with us and doesn't start with God, we're eventually going to have to lay that down. So here's Paul. He's got these virtues. He's zealous for God. He wants to see God's story continued, but, but he's got it wrong. So his, he doesn't really, you always hear this talk about Saul's conversion, but it's not so much his conversion and his awakening because he's not called to a different story. He's not called to a different God. His eyes are open to what he's doing. And, and a fuller revelation of the same God. It's one of the ironies of, of Christian history that a lot of the times when God begins to move in a fresh way bringing revival, bringing renewal sometimes the first and fiercest critics of it are the people from the last wave of revival they don't realize you know you become set and you think well this is how God did it you know I remember you know God, God did this this is what God does that's what God did with you but God's God's moved on, you know, the pillar pillar of fire kept moving, you had to follow it with the tent. And if you're camped out on what was, sometimes you can find yourself opposing what God's doing now. And that's the situation Paul's in. And if he'd think about it, he, he, he would begin to see what a strange situation it is. Now, because we're not first century Jews, we don't realize a lot of the dynamics That's going on here but one of the oddest things that happened when Jesus came was that you got the Sadducees and the Pharisees acting together because they had totally different aims totally different views of the world totally different views of what was going on you had the Sadducees who are also the party of the priests and indeed the chief priest here is going to be a Sadducee they thought that everything that was going to happen was going to happen in this life. They didn't believe in the resurrection of, from the dead. They didn't believe in a life to come. They were very much, God shows you his favor by honoring you in, the, in life right now. They opposed Jesus, not really on theological grounds, but because he was disturbing the peace, and, you know, they had kind of, peace with the Roman authorities they could still carry on their worship in the temple and they could kind of still be at the top of Jewish society and they were opposed to Jesus because he was stirring things up and they didn't want the Romans to come in and shut everything down so their opposition to him was just their own self-interest the Pharisees however were the people that were really trying as best they could to be faithful to the Word of God the Pharisees arise kind of in this period in the period of israel's exile that when we were in the old testament we looked at that when they went off into captivity in babylon and jews had this question of like how can we be faithful jews without the temple you know we we don't have the temple of our god that's the center of our 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 life as believers How, how can we continue being faithful believers if we don't have the temple and what they realized is well we have the bible well they wouldn't have called it the bible but you know, they would have said, we, had the pro- we have the prophets and Moses and the writings. We have that, and so that'll be the center of our life. So you begin to get this class of scholars that, that search through the scriptures and that recognize that it was Israel's unfaithfulness that caused them to go into exile, and they are determined to be more perfect followers of that word so that they won't Ever incur something like that again. And that's, that's the Pharisees. They're the ones that are like, they, they believe in the promises of scripture. They believe in a coming judgment, a resurrection from the dead. And they're trying to be faithful to it. And they see like the, the chief priests and everything. They're faithful. They go to the temple and worship, but they very much see the, the, the chief priests and the Sadducees as sellouts. So for these two groups to work together, they really have to, kind of be putting aside their differences and see Jesus as such a threat. Now it's interesting that Jesus has, his harshest criticism is is for the Pharisees, but that's kind of a double-edged sword. Sometimes we would think, well, he criticized the Pharisees the most, those must have been the people that he had the least hope for, but it's, it's not. I mean if you read the parable of the father and the two sons we always think of it as the prodigal son but it's really about the father and both sons you know he's just as concerned about that older son who's never gone astray and he says hey you know when his older son is is upset about the the welcome back of the prodigal he says look i always have you with me and everything i have is yours but i had to celebrate well that's kind of the pharisees they've never gone astray he's criticizing them and everything but he's criticizing them because really, they're the only people taking this seriously. A lot of times, um, it's much easier for us to see, to be called to speak to our own tribe. Um, it's very easy to, to criticize a, a them group, oh, those people. But a lot of times, if we're really being faithful, the people God calls us to confront most often are our own tribe, because that's where we live, that's us. Uh, and there's always a little bit of repentance in that. So one of the reasons Jesus goes after the Pharisees is because they're the, they're the people taking things seriously. And it's interesting that um, in the New Testament, in Acts, we get, we get the statement that a lot of the believers can't come from the, the group of the Pharisees. And, uh, in fact, the first people outside of the way to speak favorably about the way are going to be Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. They're going to go, they're going to be defending Paul and say, wait a minute, what if he really did hear from his spirit, you know? So, for Paul being a Pharisee, it doesn't necessarily mean he's opposed to Jesus, but he, he feels he has to be, but it's because he takes things so seriously so when he's going and making this deal with the chief priest to get these letters, something in his brain ought to be saying, why, why am I allying with this guy again? Because this is a guy I think is seriously missing it. But he doesn't, he gets that letter and he heads off to Damascus. It's interesting the way the Lord addresses him when he meets him on the Damascus road he gets this statement, which in the English translation, it, it doesn't have quite the force, but it's still great. It's, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, the double repetition of Saul, that's personal. It's the same kind of thing when Jesus teaches us to pray and talk about God as Abba. That doesn't just mean father, it means daddy. Well, when God is saying Saul, Saul, and not just Saul, it means, it means that he knows Saul. Not just that as, as an abstract fe- fact I know you you're Saul but Saul Saul I know you I made you why are you doing this he doesn't say come right out and say I'm Jesus and you're opposing me He says why are you doing this and I think that's because God knows what's in Saul's heart and knows that Saul just needs to take have, have him to be forced to focus on the situation and consider what he's doing It's like, why are you persecuting me? (coughs) So, you know, Saul's like, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. So you have Saul brought up short here and asked to consider what he's doing. Why are you doing this? Not condemning him, but saying, hey, why? Because Saul's heart is has good motives he's just headed in the wrong direction now as i said i was telling uh telling rick you know i I spent during the week when i was i was going through this and i was thinking about how this fits into what we know of paul's life and his time of going to arabia and studying there were all these things i wanted to say about paul But as I was praying and thinking about this, it became clear that probably that's not what the Lord wanted me to focus on uh, in this chapter. So we're going to come now to Saul goes into the city. He's blind. He's blind and doesn't eat or drink for three days. Three days is, that's not a random number. Can can anybody think of another three-day event? Come on. I see you laughing, Linda. Three days. Jonah three days is is actually a a typical period of testing uh, in the Bible and that is definitely echoing uh, the trial of Jesus and God's after three days God speaks to to this disciple we know of uh, we're introduced to called Ananias Uh, incidentally not the Ananias that lies about giving land to the temple and is struck dead Um, but but a different Ananias Um, kind of redeeming the name and uh you know if you're ananias you're you're like lord i'm you sure this is the guy you want I, i i've heard about this guy he's um he's he's like you know bringing people before the authorities and they're being killed and stoned and i don't really want to get stoned but he you know the lord tells him just just go to him and ananias is faithful and he goes to him and we all know the story we know what's going to happen with Saul we know this is Paul who's going to write a chunk of the New Testament and everything but there's nothing to show that yet he just knows God told him to go and so he goes to him and when he greets him he doesn't just say hey I, I, I heard you know you had an encounter with God and God sent me here he goes up to him and the first thing he says is "He says, brother Saul He welcomes him in. Before Saul's done anything to recommend that to him, just on God's say-so, when he goes there, he says, Brother Saul. That should always be our posture when we're reaching out for God to the world around us. Too often in in the history of the church, it hasn't been. We're really good at playing the us and them game. How, how how many times have you like watched the news, and just seen the state of the country, and you think, oh my gosh, you know there's, there's, there's this this is the unbelief, and and you know that that kind of thing has has just expanded, you know. We have, we have the terms for that, you know, we're, we're fallen away, we've turned away, we're in need of revival. You know, we, we look at the world and we see things that way. Jesus actually always has a very different summary of that kind of situation. When Jesus looks around and sees a small group of people, believers, and a large kind of group of unbelief, a large population and unbelief around them, Jesus looks and says, hey! The field's ready for harvest. That's Ananias here. He's going, he's trusting God that Saul is ready for harvest. And he just goes up and says, Brother Saul. He doesn't lament, oh, you know, I heard on CNN, well, he does say, I heard about this guy, but he's not like, oh, you know, a CNN, I saw how, how Paul was out there doing all this, and you know, oh, the world's just going to, no, he's like, Brother Saul. We don't here, much else about Ananias in the Bible, just this. But if Ananias doesn't do this, we don't get, we don't get most of our New Testament. All that ministry that, that Paul does falls on this act of faithfulness from this one believer. Through various times in church history, there have been these kind of notions that creep in despite the fact that scripture doesn't teach it that way, that there's kind of like rank in the kingdom of heaven. There's like important believers and unimportant believers and, you know, those that are called to great roles and, and you'll hear all sorts of justifications for this. And, but the language God uses is there are elbows and toes and noses and ears which has no structure of rank in it at all. You have at various times of the church, you, you get this elevation of people that teach. Of You, you, you see clergy kind of elevated um, by the fourth and fifth centuries, you kind of get this idea that clergy is somehow more special uh, than the regular believers, which is not a biblical picture at all. The New Testament picture is clergy, we're here to teach people so that you can do the work of the ministry. That gets confused. You hear people talk about, oh, he's called to the ministry, or, yeah, he got the call to the ministry. No, if you're a believer, the ministry is on you. If you're clergy, if you're called to teach, you're just that's there to prepare people to do the work of the ministry, but it all comes down to everybody in the pews. That's how the kingdom moves forward. We get this great, great picture. First Peter, uh, chapter two, verse five. Peter talks about we're living stones. You know, just like Jesus is the chief cornerstone, we're living stones, being built together into this edifice that is the church of God. One of the really cool things about moving to New England from West Texas is like there's stone walls everywhere. You go into the woods, there's all these stone walls from the and um. That's because there's a lot of stones in the field, but they're works of art. You can't just, you got to know which stone goes where or the whole thing falls over. God calls us stones. Humans, we're uncomfortable with stones like that because it takes so much craftsmanship. We can, as, as I said, there's beautiful walls. You can see that craftsmanship, the people that took the time and knew, but we'd rather build with bricks we like bricks because bricks are bricks. You can stick any brick anywhere and it does the same thing as any other brick. But with stones, they got to go where they go or the whole thing falls down. A lot of the life in the church goes into making bricks even though we don't realize we're doing it. We'll look and we'll we'll go, "Oh, man, this 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 church over there is, you know, they're really flourishing and what are they doing?" You know, and, and you'll have models on how to do what they're doing. And there are good things about, the, the, there's a lot of wisdom in learning from each other. But we're not called to be the same things as each other. We're called to be what God called us to be. And the highest we, thing we can do is be faithful, to seek God for where he wants us, for where he wants us placed. For every Paul, you need an Ananias. And we're going to get to another guy like this in just a second. But for the kingdom to flourish, to be built into what it it needs to be built into, to be God's redemption of, of the world, we've all got to be in the right place, the right stone. We have to be faithful. If you've been in ministry, you will eventually end up going to conferences. Um and it's kind of funny because having now returned to to ministry again after a long absence and I was Steve and I went to a conference in Massachusetts a couple weeks ago and and I was struck by just how everybody was saying things they were they were they had these plans and structures and and were presenting them as you know well this is this is you know we're going to bring revival we're going to do this and I'm listening to it and I praise everybody for their faithfulness and wanting to serve God and their they're bringing what talent, you know, bringing their talents to God. But at the same time I'm listening to the same exact types of of brick-making strategies that I heard 30 years ago when you'd be going to conferences and it just it reminded me years ago there was this um the preacher and I think it was Jack Deere. I'm pretty sure it was Jack Deere, but he would <laughs> you show up at a pastor's conference and the first thing he did was very kind of indicting if you're a pastor because he had he brought like this potted banana plant onto the stage with him and set it down next to the podium and he opened his speech by saying he said I have two banana plants this one comes around to conferences with me and the other one is bearing fruit um, you can get caught up in, in trying to figure out what the plan of God is and and copy everybody else and, and spend a lot of time chasing that instead of just being that stone where God has planted you. Well, like I said, we're going to get to Ananias and then we're going to get to the second one. Now Saul's been in Damascus and he preaches and everybody's like, hey, this is the guy that came here to stop this? And it's, it's interesting because this is the first time we get this little this little description called the way which lets us know that whatever else the early church was it wasn't just a set of beliefs there was something recognizable that people could go oh yeah they're they're on the way they're part of the way well so Saul is preaching and even though it's not quite clear here we know from other texts he's he's actually in Damascus about three years preaching um, and proving that Jesus is the Son of God That kind of loses something to us. But to say Jesus was the Son of God in Jewish culture—if you say Jesus is the Son of God, you're also saying Jesus is God, which is blasphemy. Which is why they wanted to stone Jesus, because by saying he was the Son of God, he made himself equal to God. Well, here's Paul proving it from Scripture, and uh, everybody's like, "Wasn't this the guy that just came up here to kill everybody? Now he's he's preaching this. This is weird." And uh, eventually, the pious Jews there, who were probably motivated by the same types of things that motivated Paul in the beginning, are like, well, we got to kill this guy because he's just making things work, he's gasoline on the fire. And, um, but, you know, he's got followers, and they lower him out the window, and he escapes, and he goes to Jerusalem. But when he shows up in Jerusalem, what's his resume? This is the guy that gave approval to the killing of Stephen. Who, who wants to go meet with this guy? Because I'm sure they're like, oh, yeah, he's a believer now. And they're all like, yeah, he's a believer now. I mean, they, they probably picture him out there going, yeah, trust me. I, I'm, I'm with Jesus now. Yeah, come out, come out. You know, they, they, they're probably not buying the sincerity of it. But we get this great character, Barnabas. If you want to be like anybody in the Bible, man, people want to be like King David, except for the adultery part, hopefully except for the adultery part. People want to be like Moses, be like Barnabas. First time we're introduced to Barnabas in acts is he's selling his property to give to the church because there's a need. The next time we're introduced here, everybody else is running away, and Barnabas goes, "Hey, wait a minute, Saul, I will bring you to the disciples." Barnabas has this great name. It means "son of encouragement." Not only will he bring Paul to the disciples and introduce him and place him in the church but then he follows he goes with Paul as his companion on the first missionary journeys so he's a vitally important character there's somebody else that goes with them there's this kid named John Mark Uh, he's a friend of Peter's Um, as a matter of fact when Peter is uh, escapes from prison earlier in in relation to the praying of the uh, disciples it's it's to John's John Mark's mother's house that he goes so John Mark goes with them on their missionary journeys and he's helpful but um, he gets homesick and he goes home well the next time Paul and Barnabas are going to set out on a missionary journey Paul is like we're not bringing this kid he he left us last time nope nope can't can't take him he's you know, he's, he's that workman that set his hand to the plow and looked back. Can't, you know, with good biblical reasoning, you know, quoting Jesus. Um, so he can't come with us. But Barnabas won't give up on him. And it, it becomes so sharp that they split. Now, a, a lot of uh, a lot of institutional preachers and everything, not wanting to cast any aspersions on Paul. Paul is in many ways kind of the the highest theological figure for people in certain church circles, they'll be like, well, you know, Paul was probably right there. But let's look what happens. Barnabas takes John Mark with him. And the next time we we start coming across Mark, we get Paul and Timothy saying to Timothy, oh, by the way, bring Mark with you because he's really helpful to me. And we get Peter saying, oh, Mark, who is my son, this is the guy that writes the first gospel and it's pretty clear that all the other gospels except for John are building on his work because he went out and you know he listened to Peter and heard about the life of Christ then he went to talk to the people and he gave us the earliest written account of the life of Christ we wouldn't have that if it weren't for Barnabas in the story of God in God's plan of redemption some characters are more visible than others But there are no minor characters in the church. Paul talks about the body being built up by what every joint and ligament supplies. The great thing is to be faithful and to seek God's face, to seek God's heart, and to find out where God has you planted. And that may look very, very, very different from what he does with other people, but if it's in line with Scripture and it's in line with your sincere seeking of God, don't worry about what it looks like. Don't worry if you're not crafting a purpose-driven life. Um, or, you know, not, not, not casting aspersions on Rick Warren. I love him. <laughs> but don't, don't worry if, if your walk doesn't look like every other walk. You are a stone. You're not a brick. And God builds his church out of those stones. And here we have two of those stones. And without those two stones, like this massive edifice of the New Testament doesn't happen. I mean, in God's sovereignty, God will build his church and God will do what he will do. But these are the faithful men of God he used. Men and women of God. Like I say, if you can be like anybody do a lot worse than being like Barnabas.